Chapter 8, Puritanism and Hiving Off. The Scots, said one of the greatest and most distinguished of our compatriots within living memory, fornicate gravely but without conviction. I know exactly what Don Roberto, the lovable and remarkable R.B. Cunningham Graham, meant when he made this often quoted saying, I don't know that I would entirely agree with him, the shade of Robert Burns, and a host of other joyfully amorous compatriots of Don Roberto's and mine rise to deny him. But I know what he was driving at. He was referring to a habit, obvious amongst certain lowland Scots, of taking their pleasures with a gravity which almost seems as if delight was distasteful to them. This habit has been remarked on by many visitors to Scotland during the last century, but not before. A gravity of demeanour while dancing or drinking or merely sitting about listening to the band in a public place seems to have been a fairly recent development amongst the Scots, but if it isn't taking the great Cunningham Graham's light-hearted aphorism too literally, such gravity, even in the act of love-making, does not necessarily argue a lack of conviction. This gravity of demeanour, of course, is a legacy of that peculiarly national blend of Puritanism, which has both strengthened and bedeviled our race for the last four hundred years. It shows itself in the oddest ways. Sometimes admirably, if a trifle depressingly, sometimes laughably, and sometimes displays itself in a downright sour and displeasing fashion. Before I go any further, let me make it clear that by no means all, or indeed even the majority, of Scots people are deeply affected by this legacy of Puritanism. Indeed, these pages will have been written to little effect if the impression has been left that the Scot cannot enjoy himself with as much gusto and sometimes more gusto than the average Englishman. A thread of Puritanism, however, is in all of us, and when it shows itself, it has an unfortunate habit of hitting the headlines in the press of all Great Britain to an extent quite in excess of its true value. How often does not one not read in every journal from Cornwall to Caithness, a piece of information circulated by the news agency under some such heading, Scottish Church objects to the Duke of Edinburgh playing polo on the Sabbath, or perhaps Scots Kirk leaders shocked at Prime Minister's visit to Rome. What the newspapers, which so gladly and so gay, uh, I don't know, gladly and gaily disseminate. Um, what the newspapers which so gladly and so gaily disseminate these tidbits of puritanical scandal omit to mention is what Scots Church objects and what importance that church holds in the land. The church, which fulminates almost annually and with such large news, results against uh, any Sabbath breaking in high places is not the official Presbyterian Church of Scotland, by law established but a small seceding body known as the Free Church, or more familiarly as the We Freeze. If the newspapers who give such prominence to the Free Church Declaration were to explain this and its significance, it would, of course, detract from the news value of the story, so not unnaturally they refrain from explanation. Let the present writer make it clear that, though he differs from the we freeze profoundly on many theological points, and most certainly upon the interpretation of their rigid moral theology, he has considerable admiration for them. They are the true inheritors of the 17th century covenanters, 
who, bigoted and unattractive though they may have been, were men of steadfast courage unto death. They knew what they believed in, and they never wavered. The present we frees know that what they believe in, and they never waver. Um, for that they surely must be respected. However, much people in Scotland, oh, however much people in Scotland may respect them, or sometimes undeservedly laugh at them, no one here regards them as representing more than a minute proportion of the country's population and opinions. They are mostly to be found in the remoter West Highland and Island districts in those parts which did not retain the Catholic faith. The Celtic temperament, if it is going to believe in anything at all, must believe definitely and not vaguely. After the Reformation, the remoter districts of the North and West were left alone by the church authorities in Edinburgh for over a century. Some endeavored, but without priests, to keep the remnants of the beliefs of their forefathers, when priests eventually reached these people in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, they were able to cling on to their Catholicism, which they retain to this day. In other districts to which the missionary priests did not penetrate, the people were left without pastors, until in the late 18th century a rigid form of Presbyterianism reached to them. They welcomed its definiteness and became its ardent supporters. It is their descendants who are the wee frees of today, and whose occasional pronouncements are so gleefully seized upon by Fleet Street as the voice of Scotland. They represent considerably less than 1% of Scotland's population and opinion. Hiving off. Excuse me. Apart, however, from the passionate definiteness of their Highland Celtic opinions, they do represent an important quality in the Scottish character, the love of hiving off. That is, separating into an infinite in infinity of little compartments of opinion. Let the reader be assured that he is going to be spared even a moderate compression of Scottish religious history since the Reformation. Since, however, this love of hiving off displayed itself most obviously in religious matters, some brief mention of it must be made in one paragraph. As soon as the religious wars of the 17th century came to an end, and when the Presbyterian Church of Scotland eventually became established, Hiving off began in a really big way. By the end of the 18th and at the beginning of the 19th centuries, there were actually between 20 and 30 differing sects of Presbyterianism. To the outsider, the differences between these sects in faith or in behavior might seem so trivial as to be almost imperceptible, but by the believers themselves, these differences were most passionately marked, observed, and upheld. By now, most of these sects have been absorbed into the national church or have died away under the general skepticism of the 19th and 20th centuries. The tendency, however, has, which produced them, that is, the love of individual separation in belief and behavior, remains most strongly in the Scottish character. This love of separatism originates from what is, after all, an estimable trait in the Scot, his intense individualism, his dislike of being told what to think and how to think, his distrust of the herd, his lack of desire to go along with what the Americans call the bunch. At his best, the, Scots, the Scot does not give one hoot what the bunch thinks of him, and one cannot but admire him for this. Nevertheless, for anyone who attempts to organize vital opinion in Scotland, this tendency can be profoundly irritating. The smallest committee meeting must have its minority report, and even in that minority there is usually one individual who differs from everyone else, including the minority. This separatism or love of hiving off is to be found equally in the lowland and highland temperament. 
It seems, however, to have its origin in a Celtic background. Religion apart, the Irish are almost as bad or as good as it, at it as we are. It was only the appalling mistreatment of the Irish by the British amounting to persecution that ever united them to definite action, and when they were at their most united it was under the English-educated Saxon landlord-born Parnell. One is sometimes tempted to believe that the only person who might lead the Scots to the expression of a definite national opinion would be a foreigner, an amiable and eccentric squire, let us say, from East Anglia, one of those English unusuals who crop up in each generation to interest themselves in other people's national causes, and who usually do it very well. To return, however, to Puritanism, which was the first subject of this chapter, this deep trait in the Scottish character was undoubtedly encouraged by the license to hive off, which was granted to all Scots at the end of the 17th century, and which was the eventual fruit of the Reformation. Each band of hivers off seemed to attempt to outdo the others in inventing puritanical regulations, the most excessive, of course, being Sabbatarianism. Sabbatarianism. Sabbatarianism, save in remote northwest country districts, is much on the decline in Scotland today. Most Scots in middle life, however, can remember a different state of affairs. They can remember a time in their childhood when even large cities, such as Glasgow and Edinburgh, seemed half dead on Sundays. Few people issued out of doors, save to go to either or both of the Sunday morning and evening services. The possession of a motor car was, until the end of the First World War, still the sign of a fairly well-to-do professional man, and most of these same well-to-do men would not then have used their cars for Sunday drives into the country. All that has now completely ended. As soon as people have either gone to the morning church or have enjoyed their Sunday morning long lie-in, the streets and roads of Scotland are just as full of motorists, cyclists, pedestrians, hikers as they are in England. All save municipal golf courses are open on Sunday. There is bathing by the seaside and in the lochs. The bona fide travellers are already explained. Can oh, the bona fide travellers, as already explained, can enjoy themselves having drinks at seven-day license, country hotels all day. Here and there, some regulation remains to remind one of the past. But in general, it would be safe to say this: the two wars and the influence of radio have, in the large towns and in most of the south of Scotland, abolished the old Scottish Sabbath. The Puritanism that made the Scottish Sabbath still stiffens the Scottish character in other ways, sometimes to good effect, sometimes one cannot help feeling lamentably. It is the legacy of Puritanism that gives the Scots such a strong sense of domestic decency. The better type of Scottish housewife keeps her home spick and span in the manner of the Dutch housewives, whom one sees in the old paintings from Holland. The better type of Scottish father, even though he may not hound his family to the kirk as he did in the old days, preserves a patriarchal attitude at which one may smile, but which today is sadly lacking in many other parts of the world. It has its origins even amongst non-Kirk-goers in Old Testament teaching more than half remembered. It may be a part of the legacy of Puritanism that gives the Scottish soldiers their dogged power of resistance and makes them amongst the finest troops in the British Army. The Unco Guid on the other hand, it is Scottish Puritanism that likes to pretend that everything in our larger cities is as respectable as the unco guid would like it would like to believe it to be. At the time of writing these words, an announcement appeared in the press that the Edinburgh City Council had refused the offer of a bench for f or free seat for old people in the historic grass market in the heart of the old town, where there is still an undoubtedly large amount of slum life still persisting. 
The reason given to the would-be donor was that the seat might be used by undesirables. By undesirables, the council probably meant those pathetic down-and-outs who have recourse to the Doss House in the same grass market. No doubt these poor undesirables might make a displeasing sight sitting in the open air, perhaps even drinking their concoctions of methylated spirits, and would in the eyes of respectable society be better hidden away in the Doss House. In short, a form of social puritanism would like to pretend that such sores on society's body do not exist. I am glad to be able to report that this decision to refuse a free seat for undesirables has provoked some sarcastic comments in the press. The undesirables may get their free seat after all. It is Scottish puritanism that gives so many of the faces of town dwellers, even when they are supposed to be enjoying themselves publicly, that grim, unsmiling expression so beloved by the cartoonists. It is Scottish Puritanism, above anything, everything else, which is responsible for an excessive sense of sin and guilt, which has, alas, haunted so many good Scots folk for the last 400 years. There must be very few people left in Scotland today believing in the detestable doctrine of predestination to hell. The legacy of such beliefs, however, linger, linger on. lingers on. If anyone out of curiosity would like to get a whiff of what the sense of sin once meant to the more strict Galvinistic Scots, let him read James Hogg's truly appalling novel, The Memoirs of a Justified Sinner. The Ettrick Shepherd who uh the Ettrick Shepherd wrote this book in the early years of the last century, when such characters as he portrayed in his grim story of seventeenth century Edinburgh had long disappeared, but he was nearer to them in time than we are, and may well have heard tales of them. His book is a work of genius and is all the more astonishing, not only as the product of a country-bred shepherd, but of one who was, to put it at its mildest, most certainly not bred in the Calvinistic tradition. James Hogg was not unduly oppressed by any sense of sin. The Other Side It would be inappropriate and wrong of me to end this chapter on so gloomy a note. I have endeavoured to be fair to what I consider are the better effects of Puritanism in stiffening the Scottish character, but I cannot conceal that it is an element in our national constitution which does not make much of an appeal to me. What I would like to point out to the reader and to remind him of is how successfully so many Scots have triumphed over this gloomy trait in their inheritance. But give me a canny hour at Ian, my arms about my deario, and warly cares and warly men, May age tap saltirio, green grow the rashes, oh, green grow the rashes, oh, the sweetest hours that e'er I spend are spent among the lasses, oh. It may have been the inspired heart of the Irishire farmer poet that in a sudden moment conceived these ever popular lines, but he spoke not only for himself, he spoke for countless thousands of his compatriots who have shouted these and other of his songs drunk or sober, into the teeth of the respectable Puritan tradition which has for so long tried to bind them down. Burns was a genius, but he was a genius of the people, and what he expressed found an echo in their hearts. There have been plenty of other minor versifiers in the Burns tradition who have expressed the Scottish gusto in love and in the taking of pleasure. Most of their verses are now forgotten because their authors did not have their predecessor's talent, let alone genius, but they too in their minor way spoke for Scotland. So did other people in by no means a minor way. Was there ever a writer with a more generous heart with a greater taste for living than Walter Scott? Stevenson, with his tingling sensitivity, loved life and loved art and all forms of enjoyment. 
He lived at the very heaviest time of Edinburgh's Scottish Puritanism in the last century, and he rebelled much against his surroundings. But he too, as he himself recognized at the end of his life, exiled in the South Seas, spoke for Scotland. On the one hand, one thinks of the undoubted Puritan tradition which has here and there strengthened, but more usually overlaid, Scottish life. On the other hand, one looks back remembering not only the famous names mentioned above, but others now nameless or forgotten who kept the flag of pleasure flying in Scotland. There were the men of 18th century Edinburgh who, upon a sea of claret and good sense, floated happily through life, for the most part unhindered by the disapproval of their neighbours. There were the men who, later on in the early 19th century, provided the models for Christopher North's Noctis Ambrosiani, including, it should be remembered, James Hogg himself, the Ettrick Shepherd. There were even the characters of Victorian Scotland, the eccentrics and the so-called ne'er-do-wells, whom Stevenson recalls so unforgettably. The more one reflects on the past of Scotland's pleasure, the more does one detect in it a virility which bids defiance to all rule which wish to crush it. Scottish delight. And today one has only to look round and see that though the remains of the Puritan traditions may here and there constrict us, we are not at heart a people with a distaste for our dis- for or a distrust of pleasure. Listen to the crowds at a football match in Glasgow or Edinburgh. Attend a Glasgow music hall when one of their favourite native west of Scotland comics is on the boards. Get yourself invited to one of the older Edinburgh dining clubs in the winter. Listen to the sound of the bagpipes. And finally, to return to a favourite subject of mine, either learn to do the Scottish country dances or just go and attend an evening on which they are being well and properly performed by groups of young Scottish folk. If, while enjoying or only observing during your attendance at any of these functions, you keep your ears and your eyes open, you will find plenty of evidence of the survival of the Scottish capacity for pleasure. The blaze of Scottish tartan, the sound of the pipes, the swing and style of the Scottish dance, these and other manifestations of the vigour of the Scots' capacity for pleasure are known all over the world. What is known also all over the world is the strong unbending character of the Scot which his Puritan inheritance has given him. The world too has, alas, noted the effects on him when that Puritanism degenerates into a sour and jealous disapproval. Here maybe we are at the heart of the paradox. The contradiction in the Scottish character mentioned so often in these pages, Puritanism can strengthen and can sour the Scottish character, but through it all, cheerfulness keeps breaking in. Scottish delight has the last word.